Now, if you had to guess, what do you think the oldest Christmas carol is? Now, that's a rhetorical question. Don't feel like you have to shout out an answer. Silent Night was my first guess, and it was written in 1818 in a small village in Austria, but it's not the oldest. Um, Hark the Herald Angels Sing is a little older. It was written in 1739 by Charles Wesley. But O Come All Ye Faithful, it's even older. That one, they think, goes all the way back to the 12th century. Now, St. Francis of Assisi, who's mostly known for his love of animals, he's the one who's credited with actually introducing Christmas carols into the church services, and that was all the way back in the 12th century. But there's one that's even older. They think it's the oldest. It goes all the way back to the 4th century to a bishop named Hilary of Poitiers, who wrote a hymn called Jesus, Light of All Nations. And it was about the three magi who came to encounter Christ. And it's generally considered the first Christmas carol. But I think the first Christmas carol was actually sung by Christ's mother, Mary. Now, Mary didn't really know what Christmas carols were. um, And I'm not sure if she intended even for for us to sing what she has written. Um, But what we'll find here is amazing that the probably illiterate mother of Jesus has written one of the most theologically rich psalms and hymns in all of Scripture. And remember, she's an ordinary woman. Okay, she's probably illiterate, was uneducated, might not even be able to read. As a poor woman at this time, she probably didn't get a very robust education, if she got one at all. And yet she writes, I think, the first and one of the best Christmas carols that we'll read here in Luke chapter 1. Before Jesus is even born... She writes these words, knowing in faith and prophesying of what his birth will mean. Now, we're not going to be able to plumb all the depths of what these words mean for us, but what I want to show you in this Magnificent, in in Luke chapter 1, verse 46, and we'll go all the way to 56, is this, I think we'll see here three reasons that we have to rejoice. So we'll look at three reasons to rejoice this Christmas. So if you have your Bible, if you'd go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 56. And if you are able, would you stand um, for the reading of God's Word? In Luke 46, 146, it says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has scattered, or he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would be here this morning. Lord, would you um, help us to magnify you in our hearts? Lord, would your Holy Spirit stir in our hearts, and even if we don't feel like it now, Before we leave this place, would we long to rejoice in you and how wonderful and awesome you are. And please illuminate your word and help us to see it. Pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. 
So if you look in your bulletin and want to take notes, you'll see our first reason to rejoice. And our first reason to rejoice is that we should rejoice for how God has blessed you. Should rejoice for how God has blessed you. Now, Mary begins this song with her personal reasons for rejoicing. But I think that we have much to gain by examining her words and seeing how much our reasons mirror hers. And she begins by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. So these verses and this, this song, it's typically kind of referred to as the Magnificat. Um, it's the, the Latin translation of the first part of these verses, which is the magnify. But what does magnify mean? We don't usually use that kind of language unless you're using a magnifying glass, but it, it sounds somewhat familiar. But to magnify, it means to, to enlarge. And so it's to gain a larger vision of how great and how wonderful God is, is what she says when she says, my soul magnify you, God. Another way to say it would be, man, God is even bigger and more wonderful than I imagined. I've been rereading um, C.S. Lewis's Chronicle of Narnia recently. Um, I just got through Prince Caspian. And in that book, one of the main characters, Lucy, she encounters Aslan again, which if you haven't read it, um, Aslan is kind of the God Christ figure in this very allegorical story. And she met Aslan already in the previous book, and he's this big lion. But when she sees him again, he's even bigger than she remembers. And so she goes and says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says to her, well, that's because you're older, little one. And she says, well, not because you are? And he says, no, I am not. But every year that you grow, you will find me bigger. So just like Lucy, Mary has found that God has grown bigger. And every year that we grow as Christians, we should find that God is bigger and bigger and bigger to us. The question I had is, man, does God seem larger to me? Is God continuing to grow in your mind and in your heart, or does He seem like the same that He was when you were a child? Because like Mary, our souls should magnify the Lord, and our magnification of Him, it should lead to our rejoicing. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And the more amazing that God appears to you, the more you should want to rejoice, the more you should want to praise Him. Mary gives a number of reasons for her rejoicing, and they're all personal reasons that she has to praise Him. First in verse 48, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. God has decided to pay attention to this poor nobody from Nazareth. She can't believe that of all of the, the billions of people in the world, He sees her. He noticed her, and God decided to bless her and to elevate her and to let her be the one who would bring Jesus into the world through the power of the Holy Spirit. For behold, now all generations will call me blessed, which we all still do, even if we're not going to refer to her as the Blessed Virgin Mary. Every single Christian should realize how blessed Mary was to be chosen by God to carry Jesus in her womb. I mean, if you were God, who would you pick? Okay, if it was me, I'm going to pick the most qualified and the most righteous person. I might pick somebody wealthy or significant, important. But yet, God chooses a humble young woman from a small town that nobody knows. Verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. He surely has. The, the mighty God has done incredible things for Mary. With all the might in the universe, the God who has the power to shatter nations and empires, the God who commands storms with a word, 
The God who defeats sea monsters like the Leviathan. The God who created black holes and stars and galaxies with just a word of let there be light. That God, He uses some of His power to intervene in Mary's life. And He does mighty things, not just for all of the people in the stories that she has heard from her youth, but for her. Why? Because God uses His power and He does things for the weak and the unnoticed. The stories throughout the Scriptures are not just stories of God showing up for the greatest and the most awesome people. Most of the time, God shows up miraculously for nobodies and for people with not very much faith. She says, and holy is His name. This is part of the wonder of God that He is holy. You can read Isaiah 6 and just wonder at how significant it is that God is so holy and separate from us and transcendent and incredible, and yet He does mighty things for us. should make us rejoice. And His mercy is for those who fear Him. She continues in verse 50, from generation to generation. That same mercy that Mary received is available to you and to every single one of us. The Scriptures reminds us His mercies are new every morning. That anyone who fears God, anyone who worships Him, His mercy and His power it is available to all of us. From generation to generation. That means it never runs out. It's been a couple generations between us and Mary, hasn't there? And yet His mercy is still new. It is still here. There may be many more generations after us if Christ delays His return. But every single generation the children back in our nursery, and for their children and their grandchildren, every single generation, God's mercy is still available to all of us. So don't believe that God has overlooked you, because our God very intentionally looks at the overlooked, and He uses His mighty power to bless them. And Mary knows this, and Mary recognizes the grace that she has been shown, and it makes her want to rejoice. And it should lead us to rejoice. We should rejoice for how God has blessed you. And I don't think that this just means, you know, rejoice once you've received the blessing. Okay, absolutely do that. Okay, when someone gives you a present, you usually want to thank them right, right when you get it, after you open it. Okay, but for Christians, rejoicing shouldn't just be a one-time event. Rejoicing should be a habit. We should rejoice the moment God blesses us, and then we should keep rejoicing Him even after He has blessed us. We should continue to rejoice. I think this is why Mary sings this song. I mean, do you think this is the only time that she says these words and then she, they never leave her lips again? Said it once and forgot about it? No, I think she repeated it enough for Luke to hear it years later. I don't know for sure, but I, I doubt she ever forgot it. Maybe she sang it as she rocked our Savior to sleep. And we don't know, but we do know that she made rejoicing a habit. Because habitual rejoicing, it's an antidote against the forgetfulness that we all face, right? Israel was always forgetting God's miracles. Even after the plagues in Egypt and the Red Sea and the manna that rained down from heaven, they still forgot God and went, oh, we're hungry. How are you going to save us, God? And then often we can forget God too. We do something similar. We continually forget about all that God has done for us. We forget about all the answered prayers we've received from God as soon as the next one comes and He doesn't answer the way that we hoped. And we get knocked out flat on our back by the challenges and trials, and we forget all the ones that God has delivered us from in the past. One way for us to combat forgetfulness is through habitual rejoicing. It's to remind ourselves of all the ways that God has blessed us. 
And we could do this a number of ways, right? We could go back. You could just spend some time and look back over your life. Remember all the miracles that you've seen, all the bills that got paid for you when you didn't know if you were going to make it, all the tests and the trials He helped you pass, all the sickness that He guided you through. If you've walked with God for long, then you probably already have story after story after story of God's blessing in your life. Don't forget them. Rejoice. Not just for the thing you hope God will do for you tomorrow, but for what God has done for you in all the years in the past. So we should rejoice for what God has done for us. We should also rejoice for what He does in His kingdom. The second reason we are given to rejoice is we should rejoice for the upside-down kingdom. We should rejoice for the upside-down kingdom. Now, we rejoice because the kingdom that Jesus will bring, His birth isn't just miraculous because He's born of a virgin. His birth is miraculous because He is a king and what His kingdom will mean. In His kingdom, it is beyond our wildest dreams. And the reality of its appearance, it, it should lead to our rejoicing. Okay, in these next few verses, the 51 to the end, they're, they're somewhat strange. So if you notice, they're all in the past tense. They seem to be talking about what God has done in the past. But they're actually prophetic words about the future. These are realities and things that God is going to do in His kingdom, things that Jesus will accomplish, and yet Mary talks about them in the past tense as if they've already happened. Why would she do that? Because God is so trustworthy that when He says He will do something, you can talk about it as if it's already done. It's not just some event in the future that may or may not happen. It has already been accomplished. You just haven't got to see it yet. But it's as good as done. So Mary rejoices. She rejoices for the things that God will do as if he has already done them. There, it's a check you can go ahead and cash. You don't have to wait. And the kingdom is upside down. Why? Because it reverses things. Now God does things very opposite of the world. He shows off his power in verse 31. He shows the strength with his arm. He scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. It's reference to God's arm. It's poetic language. Okay, God is not stuck in a human body, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is, but God is not. But it's talking about his miracles as if it is just God flexing his biceps like a bodybuilder to show his might and his power. What does God use all of that power for? He uses it to destroy the prideful. Those who believe that they're in control of the world or their circumstances. Those who believe that they are kings and gods. Those people God scatters. Like Nebuchadnezzar. If you remember from our study of the book of Daniel. A king who believed his own hype. Who looked out on his kingdom and said, I am the king of kings and God of gods. Look at all my power that I have done. And God gives him madness and he wanders and he lives like an animal outside for years. Or Pharaoh, who was proud and opposed God. And God brought his entire kingdom down to its knees. For God can scatter the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Verse 52, and he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And he exalts those of humble estate. You see, the kingdom of God is upside down. He reverses it. Those who are on thrones won't have them anymore. And those who don't have them will gain them. Because in Jesus' kingdom, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. The mighty will lose their thrones, not to their rivals or to other nations. They lose them to the poor. They lose them to the humble. Jesus 
Our king was not born to an important family, but to ordinary people. Jesus' disciples, they were not the religious elite. They were not the powerful. They were not the influential or the famous. He called tax collectors and fishermen, blue-collar workers and the overlooked. First Corinthians remind us God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. I learned this lesson about the upside-down nature of the kingdom as a child. The church I grew up in, we were building a new building, which was very exciting. It was across the street from me, so I got to watch it happen all the time. But there was one day that was really exciting because they were pouring concrete, which, you know, I was around seven, and I thought that was awesome. So there's a bunch of kids came around to watch them just pour this concrete. And the construction workers asked us, you know, invited us kids, hey, come over. We'll let you guys put your hands in some concrete. And then we'll, you know, we'll break it off and you can take it home and keep it, which sounded like the coolest thing in the world to a seven-year-old, right? So we quickly form a line and everyone's fighting for a good spot so you can get to be first. And I found my, myself on my way to the back of the line. Okay, not because I'm really humble, but because I'm slow um, and I'm shy and I'm weak and a bit of a coward. So that's why I was there. Not because of any great morality, it's just what happened. But so I'm at the back. And after the line formed, the, the workers told us, well, hey, you know in the Bible, Jesus said that the first will be last, and the last shall be first, so we're going to reverse this. You in the back, come forward, you get to go first. And so I got to put my hand in that wet concrete first. And that handprint, it sat in my dad's office for a long time. I don't know what happened to it. Um, he might have thrown it away or broke, or it's somewhere. But I never forgot that lesson, that in God's kingdom, the last are first. God brings the mighty down from their thrones, and the humble are the ones that he exalts. We also need to remember Mary's context when she said this. Her nation is conquered. They're ruled by the Romans, who don't like them very much, and they don't like them. They've longed for a king to come who will set them free, who will, who will set their nation free, who is going to overthrow this emperor and cast down the mighty. The king who is going to destroy the greatest empire the world has ever seen to this point. That's what they long for. That's what she's singing about. But the kingdom of Jesus, it's upside down. Jesus doesn't defeat the Roman Empire with a mightier army, though he could call all the angels in the world to fight for him. He doesn't conquer with human might. Instead, Jesus uses the meek and the weak and the humble. And he conquers through death. Our culture, we, we typically place the highest value on those who have the most power. Or even our celebrity culture, we value those who have fame and influence. The dream of most youth is to be famous, to be someone, to be significant. But the kingdom of God is not for famous somebodies. The kingdom of God is upside down. In the kingdom of God, the somebodies are nobodies, and the nobodies are somebody. Because of what Jesus does. Verse 53, and he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sends away empty. Here again we see the theme throughout God's whole scripture is his preferential treatment for the poor and the overlooked. In the upside down, the poor are fed and the rich go away hungry. Jesus himself, he's born to a poor woman, not a rich one. And Jesus lives as a poor man who has to depend on others. Most of his ministry, he wanders around homeless with no place to lay down his head. Instead of as a rich king, which he could. Because in the upside down kingdom of God, those who are in poverty, 
The beggars, the desperate, the hungry, they are valued and seen. And God will feed them with all good things. The people who would get turned away and ignored or who would be seen as a nuisance or a drain, even in churches. Jesus says, come. Jesus says, my kingdom is not going to be run by those with money. By, it's not going to be controlled by the powerful and the wealthy. Those people are going to go away with absolutely nothing. And the poor are going to get all good things. When we reflect on the nature of this upside-down kingdom, it should make us pause, I think. It makes me pause. Because too often we can get in this trap, even when we say culture. We, we talk about the culture as if it's something outside of there instead of something that is in all of us, too. Because whether you like it or not, all of us are both shaped by the culture and we participate in shaping the culture as much as we might want to pretend that we don't. It's like the air that all of us breathe. None of us can escape it even if we don't like it or wish it would be different. What does this mean? One of the ways that this means is too often our vision of the kingdom of God gets shaped by the culture's values. It gets shaped and impacted by the culture's priorities. And we can do this. We can do this when we evaluate success based on the world's metrics. When we say successful churches are those that are the biggest or the most excellent or have the biggest standing in their community instead of by the way that God does it in his upside down kingdom, instead of looking just for those who are faithful and obedient, doing what God's asked them to do. Because in the upside down kingdom of God, it's the small church who's faithful to the Lord and yet dies. That one's more important than the one that looks big and proud but is full of sin. This is another way we only want to hear from pastors who have the most talent or charisma. We want to hear from pastors who have the biggest churches. There's plenty of faithful pastors who served in unknown places who will be elevated in the kingdom of God. More than that, there are plenty of people who serve in, in back rooms that nobody knows even in their own church who will be elevated far above any of the names that all of us know because God's kingdom is upside down. And the kingdom of God is not about those who lead the charge, it's about those who serve. And when Jesus returns, I think the greatest Christians will all be unknown, ordinary people because God's kingdom is upside down. And we will never understand his kingdom if we use the world's values and the world's metrics instead of Jesus's. But the kingdom of God, he turns things upside down and examining and rejoicing over it, I think it will help us see how often we get it wrong, because all of us would rather be mighty proud and rich than weak and poor and nobodies, if we're honest. But so if you're looking at your life, if you're examining your gifts or your station and it makes you feel like you don't have much value in this world, you should rejoice. Because God's kingdom is upside down. The last reason that we should rejoice, if you're taking notes, is we should rejoice for God is faithful. Rejoice for God is faithful. He was and he is, and he will be faithful. She says, and he has helped his servant Israel. How many times has God been faithful to Israel? How many times has he helped Israel? If you had to count, if you had to talk about them, I think it's more times than we can count. He was faithful to Noah. When he kept him and his family and those animals safe during the flood. He was faithful to Abraham. And he gave him children even when he and Sarah were far too old. 
And even when they tried to do it their own way, God was faithful. God was faithful to Hagar and protected her even when she was abandoned twice. God kept his promises to her. God was faithful to Isaac even when people tried to steal his wells and keep him from having water. God was faithful to Jacob even when his own family wanted to harm him and wrong him and steal from him. God was faithful time and time again. God was faithful to Joseph even when he was sold into slavery and locked into prison for something he didn't do. God was faithful when he delivered the baby Moses from that river safe, even when everyone in the nation was trying to kill him. He was faithful when he delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt by sending plague after plague after plague, but none of those plagues touched God's people because he was faithful and delivered them. He was faithful as they wandered as refugees in the wilderness. And the Canaanites and the Amorites and all other nations tried to attack them and take advantage of them. God was faithful and he kept them safe. God was faithful when he gave them the promised land, a land flowing of milk and honey. God was faithful when he sent prophet after prophet after prophet to guide them and to help them even as they tried to go astray. He was faithful to Daniel in the lion's den. He's faithful to Jonah in the belly of the whale, faithful to Elijah when he brought fire down from heaven. He was faithful when he saved a remnant, even in exile. He was faithful after exile when he sent them back to their land again. He was faithful time and time and time again, even when they were faithless. And he has helped Israel, a servant, in remembrance of his mercy. All of these things God did time and time again. I've only scratched the surface of all the times that God has been faithful to his people. So the reality is every single page of your Bible, I don't know how many pages your Bible is. Okay, mine's large print, so it's a little bigger. It's about, I, I looked, it's 1,875 pages long. At least my Bible. Yours might be more, it might be less. Okay, that's 1,875 pages that describe the faithfulness of God. There's not a moment or a page anywhere in this book that he has been unfaithful, but that he has not kept his promises. And those are just the times we know about. Those are just the times that he's recorded for us to read about generation and generation later. How many miracles and wonders, how many small acts of God's faithfulness has his people seen through every generation that were never recorded? So it's not like God did nothing for 400 years till Jesus came. He was faithful every single year and every single day in between. And every single day from now until this book ends and it all comes true in Revelation, he will still be faithful Amen. at each moment. Why? In remembrance of his mercy. He does so because he's merciful. He's faithful even when we don't deserve it. He's faithful even when any one of us would have just thrown Israel in the trash and tried again with somebody different who was going to get it right and obey better. But God doesn't. Why? Because he is merciful. It is who he is. It is the core of his being. It is why we worship him. It is why we should rejoice. Verse 55, it reminds us of other instances of God's faithfulness. As he spoke to our fathers... To Abraham and his offspring forever. God's made a lot of promises. God made promises to individuals. He made promises to Abraham. God made promises to people. He made promises to the nation of Israel. 
And God's made promises to anyone who would follow him, to anyone who would call themselves a believer or a Christian. God made promises to you. And we can read about all these promises because they're recorded for us. We should remember, too, many of these promises, they were spoken first. Okay, Abraham, he audibly heard the voice of God speak to him. The prophets so often heard God's voice. Moses got to speak to God face to face in the cloud of glory. Isaiah beheld the throne. Ezekiel saw wheels and angels. They heard and they saw. We read. It's one of the small reasons that we, we stand when we're able as we read God's word. As a reminder, this is the voice of God speaking to us. But every single one of those promises, the ones God spoke and the ones he's recorded for us to see, he has kept all of them. And he will continue to keep all of them because God is faithful to his promises. Sometimes we forget the promises that we make. Okay, I often do this. Make promises to my four-year-old and my two-year-old, and I forget them. Most often I forget when they ask me for the last bite of my sandwich or a cookie. And they say, sure, well, you finish what you're doing, and I'll save this. Okay, and usually I'm good, but this morning I knew I was going to say this, so when they asked, I just went ahead and gave it to them, because I knew, well, I'm going to forget, so I better give it to you now. But I'll promise them they can have a bite, and then they'll come to my plate later and say, Daddy, where's the last bite of my cookie? You promised, and I have to apologize, because I forgot. I ate it. It was too delicious. Okay, God is not a forgetful father. He remembers every single promise that he has made. They are always before his face. He remembers them. He doesn't have to have you remind them. He knows. He remembers the promises that he has made to you. He remembers the promises he has made to all of our ancestors in the faith who have long since been in the ground and faded to dust. The promise he made to Eve that her seed will crush the serpent's head. The promises he made to Abraham, the promise for a land that no one would ever take away. The promise for children more numerous than the stars. The promise that through him, all people on earth would be blessed. The promise to David that his line would rule and reign forevermore, forevermore. And all of those promises are kept with the birth of Jesus. That's why Mary sings. Because Jesus comes as the king who was promised and the king who is going to keep every single promise that God has made. He is the fulfillment of them. Verse 56, and Mary remained with her being Elizabeth about three months and returned home. Man, what a time Mary and Elizabeth must have had. I can only imagine what they talked about, how much they rejoiced. But this is all why we should rejoice. Because our God has always been faithful. And that God who has always kept all of his promises in the past to our ancestors in the faith, he will keep all of his promises to you. The promise to never leave you nor forsake you. The promise that all who confess their sins and believe in Jesus will be saved. The promise that we can take his yoke on our shoulders and we can find rest. The promise that the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds. The promise that he will draw near to those who draw near to him. The promise that when we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit will pray for us. The promise that God will hear our prayers and listen. The promise that he will give good gifts to his children who ask. He won't give you snakes and stones when you ask for bread. The promise that God will wash us clean and blameless when we stand before his throne. 
The promise that God will always provide a way out from temptation. The promise that God will work all things together for good for those who love Him. The promise that Jesus will return. <coughs> the promise that sin and death will be banished forever. And the promise of resurrection for those who trust in Jesus. Every single one of those promises is yes and amen. I thought that was a silly song until I was rebuked by Scripture um, and then had to repent. Because it's in 1 Corinthians verse 1, chapter 20. So if you also have thought that was a silly song, let you be rebuked as I was. As it says, for in all the promises of God, they find their yes in Christ. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. All the promises of God are yes and amen through Jesus. Because our God is faithful. Christian, our God has kept every single one of his promises. He has not failed on a single one and he will not do so now. We can trust that God will do those things again tomorrow. And he will keep his promises in your life as well. To your very last breath, God will be faithful. And it will be faithful after it when you open your eyes again in the resurrection and in life with Jesus. He has been faithful for every single second that time has existed because he made it. And he will be faithful for every single moment that it exists. So let us rejoice. And these are just three reasons to rejoice. We should rejoice for how God has blessed us. We should rejoice for the upside down kingdom. We should rejoice for God is faithful. I don't know about you, um, but I'm ready for me to stop talking and for us to rejoice because we worship an incredible God. Let's bow our heads so we can rejoice as our worship team leads us. Lord, Lord, we praise you. We magnify you. Lord, you are mighty and you have done wonderful things for us. You have looked upon your humble servants and you have elevated us and named us sons and daughters of the kingdom of God. Lord, you have shown your mercy on us because we fear you even though we are generations past. Lord, you show your strength. Lord, help us to be humble because you scatter the proud. Lord, thank you that you, you elevate and you lift us up even though we are poor in spirit and weak. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and to us and everyone in between. Lord, we rejoice because you are worthy. Your name is holy. You are such a good God. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't we stand and rejoice our Savior. Amen. Hear this benediction from the end of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.